When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a crowd podcast. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Little Rock, Pastinac, Mickey Mantle, Kerouac, Sputnik, Joe and Light, Bridge on the River Quest, Lebanon, Charles de Gaulle. <laughs> Ooh la 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 la. <laughs> Hello again, and welcome to episode 64 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the history podcast that recklessly adopts Billy Joel's hit song as our marching orders to the biggest headlines, heroes, and villains of the late 20th century. I'm Katie Puckrick. I am Tom Fordyce. How did we get to where we are today? Billy thinks it might have something to do with Charles de Gaulle. Ooh, la, la. This is your opportunity, Tom, <laughs> to start doing guttural French accents. <laughs> Why have, is it always guttural? I don't know. We've waited uh, 60 odd <laughs> episodes to do a French accent, Katie. <laughs> and um, now we're going to do it. I speak very little French, but I speak enough French to give a hint that I speak more French than I do. Does that make sense? Do you have a convincing accent when you go to La France? <laughs> like, do you have people addressing you in full flowery sentences and then you have to go... Ah, no comprende. Oh, je suis désolé. Oh, je suis désolé, and then yeah. you do a Gallic shrug. Yeah. Do you know what, Katie? If someone had told me when I was 14, I'm 15 at school, learning French, and like most British boys, refusing to do a, fr- a proper French accent because we thought it was silly or pretentious. Or fruity tootie. So- or fruity tootie. If someone had told me that in future years there'd be a number of delightful French girls that I would really, really want to talk to, <sighs> and that being able to only talk um, in limited French would hinder my chances, if there ever were any chances then I would have studied much harder. I think that uh, your French teacher should have incentivized the young (laughs) boys by perhaps showing uh, Brigitte Bardot films in school as further study. That definitely would have worked. So I like how we're just filling up the airwaves with meaningless chatter because I'm guessing your knowledge of today's subject, Charles de Gaulle, is as limited as mine. I mean, is there a Wham! song that may have uh, illustrated his charms to you as a lad? Is there a street near your sports center <laughs> that you uh, strolled down as a teenager? There is nothing, Katie. I don't think there's any reference to Charles de Gaulle in 1980s pop culture or on the streets of Harlow. But, of course, there is a massive airport to the north of Paris, which in my adult life I have travelled through many times and each time wondered if Charles would be happy that such a vast airport with such massive queues is the main way that we remember him today. Um, yes. Did he never, he never sort of infiltrate American culture as you were growing up? Well, Quite a totemic uh, figure. As evidenced by the fact that when I trailed this episode... Last week, I I referenced him as the Prime Minister of France. So <laughs> Prime Minister de Gaulle. So already, I'm I'm sorry, listeners, don't trust anything I say. I mean, from now on, you can trust everything I say. Yeah, so he was, of course, the president of France, Katie. We think the reason he is popping up at this point 
in Billy Joel's song is because in May 1958 there is a political crisis in France instigated by the turmoil of the Algerian War of Independence. It results in the collapse of the Fourth Republic and the start of the Fifth Republic. Casey, we've discussed this in advance. We have no idea what even the Third Republic is, what the fourth one entailed and why a fifth was needed. And what, I mean, what even was the first? And what was there in the primordial suit before all of these numbered republics? <laughs> and what republic are we on now? I, I'm, I'm drawing a blank. But Katie, luckily, as always, we are joined by a learned guest to put our ignorance to shame. Today, it is Dr. Arthur Asaraf, who is a historian at the University of Cambridge. He grew up in France, has family from North Africa. Arthur, bienvenue. Bienvenue. Oh, it's so much better, he says it, in it, Casey. Yeah. Bienvenue. So when we think about Charles de Gaulle, he strikes me as someone who, if you grow up in Britain, if you grow up in Europe, and you do your history GCSE, your history exams, you can't miss him. He's as big a figure as Churchill. He's as big a figure in his own way as Stalin. But also he seems to be around forever. He certainly had a very long political career. I mean, if you think about it, he really comes to the, the kind of spotlight in 1940 at the beginning of the Second World War, and he retires only shortly before his death around 1969. So that's a pretty, that's like 29 years of being nearly always, although not always, in the limelight. Okay, Casey, I think we should get into not only this particular period in history in 1958, but let's get into Charles de Gaulle oh, the man, yeah. shall we? Oh, for sure. I mean, before we even start, um, Arthur, I was doing some research on good old Charles, buddy old boy, and uh, found a YouTube video that seemingly was written and narrated by a robot, and it was <laughs> so hagiographic about him, and it was just like, Charles loved La France, and he could do no wrong, and he was so patriotic, and that's the best thing to be ever. And, of course, he was smarter than all of his tutors at school. Anyway, I didn't really trust this uh, this account because it seemed like it was written by his mother. <laughs> so um, is this the kind of general feeling about Charles de Gaulle, or what's going on here? Is there a cult around him? Yes, big, big, big fan club, uh, especially in France, the whole political movement named the Gaullists after him that are still uh, very much uh, around. Is there, are there, is there an outfit that you wear? Is there like a, a badge that the Gaullists have? There is a sign. They have the, a, it's a cross with two bars on it. That's the sign of the Gaullists. It's the Quad Lorraine, the Lorraine cross. Oh, good for them. But nobody, I think, was the biggest, the biggest fanboy was him. He was he was the he was the biggest fan of himself, and I think that's why kind of the language endures sometimes. Oh, I see. So pe yeah. people are picking up their cues from the from the very beginning. Yeah, he does seem, in, in all the accounts you read about him, Katie, he does seem hugely keen on himself. There's quotes, Arthur, like, um, you could see his ego glowing in the distance. And this seems to happen from quite an early age. He claimed that when he was 15 years old, he imagined himself as a general saving friend. Hmm. Interesting. So that he had it all issues. figured out as a kid already. <laughs> Don't yeah. dream it, be it, Charles. Of course, that means we have to trust his judgment. He wrote his own memoirs um, in several bits, and they became very popular. So the problem is, a lot of the time when people refer to his life, that's his own kind of, you know, yeah. spin on it, which but he's very good at. The so. thing that cracks me up is um, I read that he was very domineering as a child, and uh, he once forced his siblings to learn a language that he had invented, which basically was French backwards. <laughs> <laughs> wow. 
<laughs> so this childhood he has, it's a very conservative childhood. It's very Catholic. Is that essential to the political leader that he will become? It is in many ways. So he comes from a very devout Catholic family. His father teaches in a Catholic school. He goes to Catholic school. He has a certain idea of a kind of old France, you know, sort of very old country that hasn't changed a lot. Um, and he's certainly very attached to his family, his values, and to the military, which is why he then goes to um, military uh, school. But he does come from, uh, he kind of develops a form of conservative political beliefs that are not against the republic. So they're not against the revolution, the first republic, as you were mentioning. Okay. Uh-huh. Exactly. And they're not necessarily against, uh, yeah, a republican form of government and for the monarchy. He's a bit ambiguous about that. So he trains as an army officer. And it's at this point that we seem to get his first nickname, Arthur, which is the charming Great Asparagus. Now, I hadn't realised, obviously I was familiar with the size of his nose, as everyone is, I didn't realise quite how tall he was. Six foot five. Yeah, one metre and 95 or something Which at that that. era is, it's it's a really big six foot five, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's like a a foot taller than the average Frenchman. Uh, What's he doing with that extra 12 inches, is my question. (laughs) He does a lot of um, flapping about. I don't know if you know this, but there's a particular kind of corkscrew that has two arms sticking out. In French, we call this uh, a Charles de Gaulle uh, corkscrew, because when he gave his speeches, he had a tendency to flap his arms up and down quite a bit. So if you, he was just like really tall and also really kind of agitated, I suppose. He had quite the serving record in World War One, didn't he? He did. He was wounded several times. And then he was made a prisoner of war in 1916, and he spent um, two and a half years in German. And he tried to escape from that German POW camp, not one, not two, not three, not four, but five times. He had this, like, I guess, hero complex, right, where he really wanted to be on the front line, in the action, and any kind of minute that he was not contributing to the victory of France was a huge problem. (laughs) And despite the fact that he was wounded several times and that he did all these escapes, he still regretted his time in the war because he thought that he hadn't done enough. He hadn't done enough. What a nut. So, Tom, get this. Amongst the five times he tried to escape this POW camp, he attempted to do so by hiding in a laundry basket, digging a tunnel. Classic. Digging a hole through a wall. Another classic. They didn't say whether that was with a spoon or not. And this is my favorite, posing as a nurse. A very, very tall nurse. I don't know how many other nurses of six foot five would have been working in the POW. I mean, maybe by the time he got to that one, was that fourth or fifth attempt? He was getting desperate because the hole in the wall hadn't worked. The laundry basket hadn't worked. The tunnel had fallen in. So drag. So why not drag? Yeah. Fine. That's great. And I just love, Arthur, that he was so frustrated when he was injured and he couldn't participate in the killing. And he apparently described it in a letter as, quote, being cuckolded, unquote. So there's a lot of gender going on with him in general. I think, you know, there's a particular kind of he really wanted to be a knight in shining armor since mm-hmm. his youngest age. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, the thing that I kept coming across when I was learning about de Gaulle was uh, him being described as caustic, cold, cutting. Uh, he was prone to fits of rage. And a former assistant said that he often used the word moron. <laughs> what is moron in French? 
You know, I'd have to look back to translation because there are several possible translations. Is it more, more, more? No, it wouldn't be more. Okay. No, that doesn't. We don't. We don't have that word. I'm trying to think which. He he was very witty. He was very biting. There's a whole like collection of his sayings by one of his former uh, ministers that is absolutely insane. He had the talent for what we call in French la petite phrase, the little sentence that can kind of like eviscerate somebody right. uh, in a few words. And he was quite austere, you know, like he wasn't somebody who was known for partying and having a great time. He was very, very focused. Okay. Some people called him the soldier monk, le moine soldat, you know, mm-hmm. like somebody who was like very better than the, the great asparagus would be my feedback on that nickname. So he wasn't a, a big party animal. However, let's get a sense of him in romance mode. Just backing up a little bit. He met his wife Yvonne in 1920 when they danced the fox trot. Her comment when she went home that night was, it's him or no one. So um, they were devoted to each other. Do you have any little insights on their tete-a-tete? And- they were extremely private in a way that is, I think, is difficult for us to understand now. Politics did not work the same back then. Right. She had never gave a single interview in her life. We mm. don't know a lot about her. A lot of the, the kind of legends that people say about her are effectively speculation or reported by other people. Hmm. And he had, you know, quite traditional views about family. So they had a very strong, very stable marriage. He was very devoted to his children. He had three kids. His youngest child, Anne, was born with Down syndrome, and they were very, very protective of shielding her from public life. Um, At a time where this was very difficult, people didn't really know a lot about Down syndrome. But it's fascinating, actually, how little we see of de Gaulle's kind of intimate uh, family life. You know, this is not Jackie Kennedy. Uh, You know, waving to crowds and sort of looking quite glamorous and being out there. This is a really different model of, of, of life where a lot of things are kept private. His faith was kept private. He was a very Catholic man, but he did not display this kind of ostentatiously. And he did not parade his his wife or his children either. He seems as well, Arthur, to be very conscious when the big moment comes of his position in it. So when Paris is going to be liberated by the Allies, he makes it quite clear to General Eisenhower that it is going to be Charles de Gaulle and a French part of the invasion force which pushes the open door. It was very important for him that... Um, France had not been sort of reinvaded by a different foreign force, but that the French had liberated themselves. And it might be worth saying that this is actually slightly more true than is often told in English-speaking versions of the war, which focus on Normandy, which was very, very important um, and and really changed the war, and of course was mainly done by uh, American, Canadian, and British forces. What people tend to forget is that there was another landing in the south of France, in, in Provence, and that was done by troops from North Africa that had already been uh, liberated by the Americans and British. So from the south, France was liberated, roughly speaking, by French forces. And then from the west, the big kind of turning point was was the Allies. My grandfather was, uh, oh. yeah, my grandfather was a radio operator in in the army. So he was recruited in Morocco. And then they went to Italy, and then from Italy um, to southern France, and then up until Germany. And, you know, he opened some concentration camps. So at least in my family, I always knew that, you know, a lot of um, French soldiers had been involved in the liberation of France as well. Well, thank you for your service on behalf of your grandfather. Incredible. And did he tell stories about that time? He did. 
did. I didn't know him. He was he passed away before I was born, but he did tell stories about that time, um, and particularly about the Battle of Monte Cassino. This mm. might interest in, interest the two of you. So he was a radio operator. He claimed that that's what saved his life, because because um, he was slightly further removed and he hid behind the truck that had the the the, the radio equipment. And that's how he survived the the shelling. Radio can save your life. Podcasting can, is a great occupation. <laughs> well, that is a sentiment, Katie, that both you and I can get behind. I'm getting a little overexcited at this stage. I'm about to pop a wheelie. So uh, let me get my enthusiasm under control, Tom, so I don't scare the horses. And let's take a break for some commercials. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. So we reached the end of the Second World War and Paris has been liberated. The scene seems set for de Gaulle to rise and to dominate French politics. But weirdly, his time at the top is quite truncated. He is the head of the provisional government when it comes in. He's the kind of effective uh, president or prime minister. They need to write a new constitution. They need to figure out how France is going to work uh, in the post-war period. And he has to manage this very large coalition of different interests, including the strongest political force at the time is the French Communist Party, who uh, portray themselves as as the main force of the resistance. And so this doesn't work too well, um, in part because if you kind of think back, he wasn't really anybody politically before the Second World War. And sure, he has this aura of glamour, but all of the usual political operators are like, who is this? We don't need to work with him. He doesn't have a party base. He doesn't have any of this. And so... He tries to um, get a constitution that is tailored after him. He makes this big speech in 1946 in Bayeux, which is where there's the Bayeux tapestry for British listeners who might be familiar with it. And he says, you know, I basically want a republic where there's a strong presidential figure, where we're not going to have all the back trading and parties that caused the instability of the Third Republic before the Second World War. And... The other parties are not into this. You know, he can't sort of build a system that has their consensus. And so he kind of withdraws from politics for a while. He tries to create his own party, the RPF, RPF. And then when that doesn't do very well successfully in 1953, he really goes undercover. So he called this his crossing of the desert, his traversée du désert, the phase where he kind of withdrew from politics um, and lived a very quiet life in the east of France in his house in Colombelle de Églises, which his wife, we are told, really enjoyed. She did not want him to go back right. in the world. She kind of enjoyed him as a quiet family man. Sure. He wrote his memoirs, and it seemed like everything was going quite peacefully. 
Although, come on, he's feeling, I would imagine, cuckolded again by the success of others in areas that he would like to be top dog. And the fact that he referred to it as his crossing of the desert, is he comparing himself to Christ 40 days in the desert? Is that what's going on there? There's certainly, yeah, a, a strong kind of either Moses or Christ, there's a strong kind of religious, like, I had to go through this experience in order to <laughs> come out stronger than ever before. <laughs> he's in the crucible. He's being totally Roasted and roasted by the fire, and now he's back, caramelized and better than ever. <laughs> and this is the point, or the start of this, is the point where he comes out with his famous cheese quote. Is that right? So he says, uh, when he's talking about the difficulty of trying to piece together post-war France, he says, how can you govern a country that has 246 varieties of cheese? I don't think that's the problem, Charles. I don't think cheese is the problem. I think that's the answer. (laughs) Also, um, Katie, because I did check this, although accounts differ, it seems there may be as many as a thousand varieties of cheese in France, depending how you define variety. And also, that's even a bigger problem for a a (laughs) cheesophobe such as Charles. Yeah, how does he make his big comeback? What brings him back? So... What brings him back is a complete institutional meltdown of French politics that happens in 1958. So we have to set a bit of the setting. In November 1954, a group of men in Algeria who called themselves the National Liberation Front, the Front Libération Nationale, launched an insurrection for the independence of Algeria. The response by the French government is Algeria is a part of France. The only, there can be no negotiation. The only solution is military. And this is the beginning of what is known as the Algerian War. Four years later, this is not going very well. The French army has had to call in conscripts. So every young French man is drafted and sent to Algeria. The numbers of the army have ballooned to 500,000, which is huge. And nobody really knows how to get out of this. And there are suggestions that the current government, which is uh, led by a man named Pierre Fimelon, might negotiate with uh, the FLN just because it's unclear where to go next. But a lot of people are strongly opposed to this. This leads to demonstrations in Algiers on the 13th of May, 1958. And then the army... um, there's a coup by the army in Algiers. And they seize power and they say, we demand the collapse of the government. And they're the ones who call upon Charles de Gaulle to come. So the beginning of his return to power is a military coup Mm. that happens in Algeria. And he kind of comes back as this consensus figure because he has such moral authority that even though he's being um, called back by the army in Algeria, who not everybody agrees with, um, he's kind of consensual enough that everybody can be like, okay, this is the man of the hour. So he comes back in the summer of, of 1958 and he finally gets the constitution that he wanted. He basically gets to write the constitution that he wants with like a really strong president who has seven years, which is a really long term. He gets to kind of float above the mass of politics, not have to do with all these petty party squabbles. And that is the beginning of the French Fifth Republic, which is the current regime that we still have. Well, Katie, there you go. That's yeah. the Republic's Explained. The Republic's Explained. The Fifth Republic. So... Now he finally is large, in charge, a bigger asparagus than ever before, <laughs> nose ever growing, 
a halo of I'm saving the world uh, hazing out amongst him. How does he handle his new power? Do people love him? Is he in the right place at the right time? Is he the man of the moment? How does it work? He is quite controversial if you think about it. There are a lot of doubts to the legality of what he is doing, um, particularly from people on the left initially, socialists, communists who say, well, you know, this is essentially a military coup. This man is a former general. He's using um, referendums a lot, so to directly consult the population, bypassing the parliament. Uh-huh. So there's a sense that, like, oh, this is basically a kind of dictator, maybe a soft dictator, but a bit of a dictator. So some people are not big fans of it. And then what's quite interesting is that the opposition to him sort of flips because he turns to negotiating with the Algerian nationalists. Uh, from 1959. And so the people that supported him, who were the ones that were really, really against Algerian independence, turn against him. And they're then the ones who say, oh, actually, he's completely useless and worthless. Um, they have all sorts of dreadful nicknames for him. Like? Uh, La Grande Zahra, the big Zahra. So they kind of like compare him to effectively an Algerian prostitute, which is not mm. um, Asparagus prostitute. It's not great, Katie, is it? it? It's not It's not quite snappy. It's not like the old tiger. That was my dad's nickname. The old tiger. You know, vegetables or sex workers. That's not what you want to be known as when you're trying to run a country. Indeed. So then, um, yeah, he gets he gets a lot of pushback from the side of people who are against Algerian independence, which leads to several assassination attempts, some of which one in particular in the summer of 1962 nearly kills him. The whole car is cribbled with bullets. He makes it out just about. um, But it was a pretty close shave. Mm. So some of this ties in. Katie, we didn't find a 1980s uh, pop music reference, but there are, of course, films like Day of the Jackal which was obviously a Frederick Forsyth book. Originally, then it was a film. There was a remake with Bruce Willis, wasn't there? But the biggie was with Edward Fox. And this was based, Arthur, was it, on this idea that there was a group of former army officers who wanted to now bring down Charles de Gaulle and set up a series of assassination attempts um, to do the job for them. Exactly. So, Day of the Jekyll, if I am not incorrect, is based on on the, on the shooting that I was uh, I was telling you about in, in 1962. So, the French army in Algeria, which had successfully brought down the government of the Fourth Republic and brought back Charles de Gaulle, so they were doing pretty well in politics. You know, they weren't just going to sit back after this. Um, so, they played a very active role in politics. De Gaulle had to struggle with them. Uh, several times. There was a coup attempt in 1961, which he managed to um, block, but it was pretty hairy for a few days. And they then kind of, some of them, uh, in combination with some activists, form a clandestine organization, which is called the Secret Army Organization, the OAS, that goes on a, a completely devastating bombing campaign, both in France and in Algeria, to prevent Algerian independence from happening. They burn the university library in Algiers. They bomb a few ministers' houses in France. It's it's really quite intense. Um, and so they're the ones that were behind uh, these assassination attempts. And how desperate does the situation get in mainland France? Is there a genuine chance that there may be a civil war? There were moments where it got really tense. So around May 1958, uh, in particular, sort of before he comes to power, the generals in Algeria had made plans for invading France. Wow. 
if he didn't show up. So there, there was called Operation Resurrection. They had made plans to sort of invade France from Algeria if the government did not cooperate with their aims. So it got quite hairy. Um, it's kind of easy to forget this, perhaps, but the Algerian war was also a war in France. So there were like bombings, people died. I mean, there, there was there was no active military front like there was in North Africa, but it was something that that if you talk to people at the time, they probably have some memories of. So I just need to get a little straight in my head about the forces that you're saying in Algeria are against Algerian independence, and then they're also trying to assassinate de Gaulle. So does that mean de Gaulle was for Algerian independence? So he he changed his mind. Okay. So... Initially, what we have is the Algerian nationalists of the FLN fighting a war against France in order to obtain their independence, and the French government is against this. De Gaulle comes to power supported by people who want Algeria to remain French and looks like he is the man to do this. Who are you going to pick when you want to win a war, even against all odds, right? And you want, you want somebody big, you want somebody who has military success. And then he turns against them. And basically, the people who want Algeria to remain French, who are some people in the military, some people among the large French settler population in Algeria, which is about 10% of the population who are known as the Pianois, who do not want Algeria to become independent, they find themselves progressively marginalized because de Gaulle is somebody who he definitely believes, his one ideological belief, I think, is that France has to be a great power in the world. But how this is achieved, he is more flexible on. So he is not particularly committed to the idea that Algeria has to be the way in which France is great. And and at some point, he seems to, to, to make the calculation that the costs of this war are too much in terms of economic costs. It's very expensive to run a war in terms of France's international position and in terms of public opinion. Any war that calls upon conscripts, you know, where your son, your brother could be sent to this place and get killed obviously becomes unpopular after a while if people are not extremely convinced of its validity. He must also, Arthur, have had a sense of the tides of history because by this point, France has lost its colonies in French Indochina. Katie, we had our episode on Dien Bien Phu with Dan Snow. Yeah. And he must also be aware of what is happening to the former colonies of what had been the British Empire as well. So, so to try and hold on to a colony at that time would have been quite a perverse move. Retrospectively, that is what it looks like. But I would say that actually at the time, it was slightly less obvious. Because actually what the French engagement initially is they let go of several colonies in order to be able to hold on to Algeria. So Uh. there's Vietnam in 1954, as you just mentioned. Morocco and Tunisia uh, become independent in 1956. This is partly in order to concentrate resources. And there is a sense in which when people tell this story, they either focus on the tides of history or on de Gaulle himself as if he had all the cards. And what they're not focusing on is the incredible persistency of the Algerian nationalist movement, who had very few resources and were very, very good at gaining international support, particularly of the Americans. And so it looked for de Gaulle like he wasn't actually given that many choices. Because even though they could keep the war 
war going in Algeria, it was basically going to cost France uh, most of their allies and most of the rest of their prestige in the world. So I think you have to remember the incredible persistence of the Algerian nationalist movement and their ability to gain the support of the Algerian population as the war went on, who it became clear basically that these people were never just going to sit back and be happily governed by the French, that it was going to be a sort of never-ending war and that it was just going to cost more and more French soldiers and, and more and more deaths and more and more violence. So there's more deaths, more violence, more in popularity for this project, what happens? Does it just grind down into the dust, this war? No, it reaches a, a kind of quite brutal climax. So de Gaulle gradually switches to negotiating with the Algerian nationalists. And there are a few rounds, it's a bit hairy, but eventually in March 1962, they do come to an agreement at Evian. And so there's a ceasefire, there's a whole plan for Algeria to become independent. And it's actually at that point that some of the worst violence happens because the people who are against Algerian independence get really, really desperate. And so they launch this really intense bombing campaign. They try everything you know that's possible. And there's a sort of panic that fills the air. Um, so then the European population of Algeria, the Pianois, most of them flee very quickly because they're sort of really terrified of what might happen when Algeria becomes independent. And they feel abandoned by the French government. So they feel abandoned by de Gaulle. A lot of them are very resentful of him. And the French army at times shoots French people in Algeria. So they're kind of seen as betrayed by their own yeah. um, government. That's rough. When we look back at that particular period in French history, Arthur, how do people judge Charles de Gaulle now? There is a lot of discussion as to his motivations. Was he always planning to um, sort of let Algeria go? Um, did he change his mind? Was, he, was his hand forced? This kind of still motivates uh, a lot of people. Some people who are the descendants of the Pinoir um, or some sympathetic to them still see him as a, as a traitor. But I think there's also some recognition um, that, you know, he wasn't the only kind of player. So he, he as, as we've seen, he's a man with very inflated sense of himself. He always likes to portray himself as being in control, as being the one leader. But actually, the story of the Algerian war is not the story of what Charles de Gaulle decided to do when he woke up in the morning. There are a lot of other actors involved. There are a lot of other people. Um, and it's partly a story about Algerian resistance, about French popular opinion, about Kennedy, about all sorts of other factors that, that play into this. I did see a photograph of him at his home office, and he had prominently displayed photographs of John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon. Mm -hmm. So this would have been towards the end of his life, obviously. Um, does he have a relationship with world leaders that is filled with mutual respect, or is there antipathy like there was with Roosevelt? I think there there's certainly a lot of respect, particularly in the later phase. So in the later phase of his life where you know he's not fighting for his status like he was during the Second World War, after Algeria becomes independent in 1962, he has this kind of aura. When he comes back to power in 1958, Tyne names him uh, Man of the Year. So he has this kind of big international aura. He's a senior statesman. He goes on a lot of trips. He goes on this big... Um, he, he's one of the first to recognize the People's Republic of China. He goes on this big trip. He goes on this big 
big trip to Canada, which goes disastrously badly because he supports the independence of Quebec and he has to leave uh, Canada very, very quickly because the Canadians don't like him. But he, yeah, towards the end of his life, he is a real weighty figure, I would say, in, in world politics. There are so many convulsions that the world is going through in the 60s, cultural as well as political. And when those come together in Paris in May 1968 in the student riots, how does the Gaulle react then? He is universally, I think, seen as having reacted really badly and having shown very, very poor leadership at that he, time. He was not down with the kids, was he? He, by that point, he was not young and he did not get what was going on. <laughs> I mean, he was always a conservative man, I think, beyond his years. And by this point, he is in his 70s. Sure. And a lot of the student demonstrations were precisely a kind of idea that they were this new generation and that why are we being governed by these people um, who are so much older than us. So many of the slogans of 1968, uh, for instance, was this great slogan where there, were, there was a drawing of a man that looked suspiciously like De Gaulle um, putting his hand on a younger person's mouth. And the slogan said, be young and shut up. You know, that the, there was the sense that there was no space for them in French politics, that they couldn't express themselves, they couldn't do all the things they wanted. And he had no idea what was going on. I think in general, he was less comfortable with... Um, internal dissent with movements in France than he was on the international scene where he was always much more comfortable because then he could always make the case France is important. Strikes, French politics, any of those things he was always much worse at dealing with. And this was just this cultural movement that he had no idea what to do with. So initially he basically, he didn't take it seriously. He thought that it would just go away, that these were just a bunch of crazy students that were on drugs. And then, um, at a crucial point, he left. Um, he left, he kind of disappeared for a few days, everybody panicked. Turns out that he was going to see um, the military in, in Germany to make sure that he would have their support, because this was a man who had been a f through a few coups. So, you know, you're not going to catch him out on a coup again. Be cautious. Yeah, he knows that, you know, if you have a few generals on your side, you can do a lot of stuff. So, the crisis probably got partially worse because of his leadership, although he did manage to stage a very successful comeback. So there's a huge pro-de-Gaulle demonstration at the end of May 1968, and they win very, very heavily in the elections a few months after that. So a lot of French people get scared uh, at the revolutionary events and at the students, and so then they kind of choose the safe bet, which is more de-Gaulle, even though he's had enough. So he's going to retire the year after that and leave to his prime minister, Pompidou, who becomes the next president. But his kind of legacy in that sense is relatively safe. He hasn't been kicked out of power. So when he died at home at his card table, apparently, what was his legacy? Was he just right up there with Napoleon as far as France was concerned? I think for not right up there with Napoleon, but one of these kind of big men, you know, that that everybody and in particular French people love to love, you know, this kind of larger than life figure. And he left this, this political legacy, you know, through Pompidou and through his successors that they then continued to enhance his legend, his, his mythology, this idea that France had always resisted was so important to French people after the war, the idea that they had not been defeated by Germany, but that actually the flame had been kept going and so that you know he went to London and 
he did this speech on the radio and they were always fighting. So he was hugely important. And he retains this huge oversized importance in French politics. French politicians quote him all the time on different sides, which is quite interesting. So they use him to say completely opposite things. And and there's often this model, you know, well, some politician will do something completely ridiculous. There'll be a scandal and they'll say like, le général, you know, the general would never have done this. Mm. You know, it's he wouldn't of, have had an affair. He wouldn't have had a dirty scandal. He wouldn't right. have had any of it. It's that kind of like, what would Jesus do? <laughs> what would de Gaulle do? The general. So he's a figure, when we look at world history around this period, Arthur, he's a figure, it seems, on par with Churchill, with Eisenhower, with Nixon, with Stalin. Yeah, he was he was right up there with them. Um, he's partly the reason why France has a seat at the Security Council, you know, and is one of the big five. He really pushed for that. He did not want um, to sort of sit back, and and I think he certainly has that cultural reach, not just in France, but kind of globally. You know, he's a name that people know um, and that people think of when they think of France in the 20th century. He's like the most oversized personality. Wow. Well, Dr. Arthur Asaraf, you have made a fantastic case for why being persistent and a little bit obnoxious <laughs> puts you in good stead to be a legendary world leader. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been really fun. What a very nice man, Katie. Oh, I love Arthur. And um, I'm not sure I can say the same about Charles de Gaulle, although I do respect him. I don't want to cuddle him. <laughs> And I probably only come up to his knee anyway, so I'd have a face full of kneecap if I were to try to hug him. But um, I am impressed with Charles's ability to brand himself. I think he would do very well on the current influencer scene. I mean, imagine him on TikTok. <laughs> imagine that giant beak on TikTok. Yeah, he strikes me, Katie, as a bit like the front man in a band in which his enormous self-regard is essential to what he does. Yeah, I mean... The self-regard is his personality. I mean, that is his superpower. Yeah, you're right, Casey. I think the episode that we've just done has reminded me, if ever I needed reminding, of how much fun this podcast is. It's really fun. <laughs> it's really fun. And you know what I always do when I hear about these larger-than-life characters from days of yore is I compare myself possibly unfairly to them. And I always think... Where am I going wrong? And, uh, you know, not that I want to run a country or start a war or escape from a prisoner of war camp. But I always think, what are the qualities that I could be availing myself of that served Charles well? So maybe I need to be more arrogant, (laughs) more demanding, more prone to fits of rage and possibly calling you a moron every five minutes. Would that help my cause? Would I be more successful if I was more like that? What do you think? It's a great philosophical question, Katie. Um, The thing that has stuck out for me from everything we've heard, I think more than anything, is those escape attempts, which (laughs) I don't know if you're familiar with um, Toad of Toad Hall. But Toad of Toad Hall does uh, a similar thing when he is in prison for a speeding offence in Wind in the Willows. And all I could think about when... um, we heard about Charles de Gaulle in his laundry basket and dressed up as a nurse was Toad of Toad Hall. Well, uh, I don't know which came first, but they are certainly part of the same rich tapestry of history. And Billy, I do believe, did the right thing because oh, me, yeah. I knew nothing about this man other than he 
cut a dash in world history. Katie, I find every episode we do, my admiration for Billy's historical scope grows a little more. (laughs) So, um... If your nads are as pumped as ours are after that, why don't you follow us at Spread That Fire so that you can be kept abreast of future episodes. Excellent idea, Katie. And if you would like another podcast to listen to, have a listen to .com Reddit Land. .com is Crowd's tech podcast. And Katie, it's also your cheeky bit on the side, I believe. It is. I'm playing away. It lifts the veil on the people of the Internet. Series 2 is about the complex metaverse that is Reddit. And there's just so much to it, Tom. It's not just a social media website. It's people. It's real lives. It's the biggest, most shocking stories of the last 20 years, like... The GameStop short squeeze last year that ripped Wall Street a new one, or the 2017 white supremacist rally that ended in the tragic death of Heather Heyer. It's immersive, it's fascinating, it goes deep. Just search for dot com, that's D O T C O M, Reddit land, and please subscribe now. Katie, I am convinced, but are you convinced by the fact that next week we have one more baseball episode? <laughs> it's California baseball. I feel that we, we've we only scratched the surface of baseball on the last four episodes <laughs> that are somewhat baseball-oriented. Thank you, Billy Joel. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. Ever yearned for the perfect pub to reveal itself from some unexpected alley? Well, The Moon Underwater is the podcast for you. Join me, John Robbins, and the lovely Robin Allender as we help a special guest create their dream pub. From the drinks behind the bar to the music on the jukebox, The Moon Underwater is whatever you want it to be. So, if you would like to join us in Desire's beating heart, search The Moon Underwater. Or maybe The Moon Underwater will search for you. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it, because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. Our lives were never the same after we learned our 21-year-old daughter, Kristen, was murdered by her ex-boyfriend. It's a parent's worst nightmare. How much did we really know about domestic violence back then? Clearly not enough. Now we know plenty. We know domestic violence, or DV, can happen to anyone. One in three women suffer physical violence at the hands of intimate partners during their lifetimes. 
One in three. I'm Bill Mitchell, host of the When Dating Hurts podcast. And my interviews with DV counselors, law enforcement, and especially actual DV survivors give the pandemic of domestic violence the attention it deserves. The When Dating Hurts podcast. It's a series of lives being saved.